Greetings. This is Kurt. Welcome to the first part of Book One. Please make yourself comfortable as we ignite the performances. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and share on your favorite platform. Comments or questions directed to our email will be answered promptly. If you care to help in keeping these complex productions coming, please buy me a coffee via the website coffee.com/theharkentheater. Unlike my wife's favorite morning beverage, that's spelled ko-fi.com/theharkentheater. Refer to episode descriptions for the exact address, our email, and our secure website, theharkentheater.com. And thank you for listening. Step through the gateway and enter the universe of the Harkin Theater. A Bridge of Doom by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Prelude The Hostage Prince. Chapter 1 Father? The pitiful image of the king wavered before Anariok's eyes and beckoned unseeingly, his face emaciated and withered, his eyes dim with pain. Father? The prince reached out to his father with hands he could not feel. His blood grew cold as the ghost faded and withdrew beyond his reach, then vanished in a descending cloak of nothingness. Father! Anariak Kajor awoke to the terrible guttural Father. groans of a dying man. Father. He floundered in a wash of confusion and blinked sticky eyelids at the cold pre-dawn sky before realizing the horrible sounds emanated from his own throat. He flinched at the bulky form with the scarlet eyes standing a few paces before him. Father! With a scaly, four-fingered hand, it stepped forward and backhanded Anariak. If not for the thick bonds of hempen holding the prince to the large, rough-hewn stake, the grim strength would have knocked him off his feet. No talk! The savage lizard turned and stalked angrily back to the fire crackling nearby, where two of his comrades sat sprawled lazily, uninterested in anything but warmth for their cold-clawed feet. His face aching from the blow, Anariok waited until the guard had sat down again before daring to move. The abuse was nothing new, and he thanked whatever power watching over him that his guard had not decided to cut him like the others had. Once he was sure they were not paying him any more attention, he tried to reposition himself within the ropes. Cramped muscles and numbed joints moved reluctantly, the many days of being captive having taken their toll. 
Not wanting to sleep again, despite his fatigue, and risk talking unawares, he decided to occupy himself by flexing various muscles. He felt the familiar burn of their soreness. He wondered which was worse. Enduring other nightmares when I sleep, or living this waking nightmare. At least, waking from a bad dream serves to tell me I'm still alive. He turned his head to ease the stiffness in his neck, wincing at the new bruise spreading on the side of his face. Beyond the tribal encampment and its many small watchfires, he could discern the now familiar valley stretching out from the base of the cliff where he had been tied. Dense, unchallenged forest filled the space within the hills and mountains. The fading night lent a gloomy cast to the landscape. Glancing surreptitiously at his guards to be sure they were distracted, he carefully tugged at his bonds and partially freed one arm, a small liberty he had kept concealed from his captors, and dared to wave away some early gnats buzzing about his head, then held his hand before his eyes, finding some small solace with his body still being whole. It was a well-known fact that Grimm's found much entertainment in slowly hacking away parts of their prisoners, a fate that had inexplicably avoided him. Perhaps that's why they torment me all the more, for lack of the standard torture. He ran his gaze over the shreds of his battleware sprawled useless on the ground nearby, its gambeson tattered, the chainmail trampled among the broken shards of his sword, mute testimony of the Grimm's hate for him and his people. His body reverberated with the recent atrocities the reptiles had inflicted on his person. Long, shallow gashes that avoided major arteries along his legs and arms. And he wondered if his gambeson hadn't fared better than he. Though Anariok's wounds would have bled only a short while, his torturers derived perverse pleasure in reopening scabs when not cutting new scars. Strangely enough, they've left my face alone. Only recently, the prince surmised a superstition regarding this curiosity. There seemed to be a belief among his captors that to maim the countenance of an enemy was to be cursed for life. Something to do with the sanctity of one's eyes. He suppressed the raw memories with a shudder and sought distraction, his eyes turning to the guard's fire. The imminent dawn brought a fourth Grim into their midst. Scowling at one of the two lying down that had fallen asleep, he kicked him brutally, then squatted next to him. The flickering firelight made it difficult for Anariak to make out who this was, but it was apparent from the immediate response of the others that he was respected and feared. One of the sub-chiefs, he guessed by the number of teeth dangling from the newcomer's necklace. A rudely fashioned curved dagger appeared in his clawed hands, and he stabbed it into the dirt. It is decided. The message shall be shared with all who serve our survival in this greatest of battles. 
the living sacrifice would be made on the battlefield before our enemies. His eyes gleamed angrily at the prince bound to the stake. Anariak alternately cursed and praised his tutors for teaching him how to communicate in Gremish. Though it was better than stupidly facing the savage two-footed reptiles jabbering in their crude tongue, what he heard now made him wish he didn't know the language. He made no sign of having understood, casually lolling his head skyward while listening for more. The chiefs will offer this conqueror's son to the deliverer. With his death should their resistance be broken. The tides of power will be turned against those who have taken our land. If not for their gruesome method of sacrifice, slow evisceration and draining of the victim's blood, Anariak would have snorted in contempt. Their sacrifices were nothing more than a vulgar demonstration of how spiteful and violent the reptiles could be to their sworn enemies. And their deliverer, as far as anyone could guess, was an unfortunate myth, a son of some obscure grim demigod, or something, that was supposed to come out of the north to destroy the Grimm's enemies, the men of the western kingdom, and return the continent to them. And as with all myths and gods these days, there had not been sign one of such a being anywhere. The prince tried to shift his body within the ropes, and for the hundredth time clawed uselessly at the large knots. If only I could loosen the hempen, I could at the very least give the lizards a good fight before I die. Sensing his captive's movements, the sub-chief yanked his blade out of the ground, inspected its edge, then stood and approached his captive. Grabbing Anariak by the throat, he stared him in the eye with a nasty grin. You're going to die for the glory of our deliverer, bloodsucker. Infuriated and no longer caring, Anariak brought his free arm around and shoved the subchief back, <clears throat> yanking his head free of the scaled claw. Grimacing with rage, the Grim swung his blade up to slash at Anariak's throat, then stopped halfway. The prince waited breathlessly, hopefully for the killing blow. Anything was better than this interminable delay towards a slow death. With a knowing look and an unpleasant grin, the sub-chief lowered his weapon. I will not cheat our shaman and the deliverer of your soul. Much as I would enjoy seeing the fluids spurt out of your neck as you died. Blinking reflexively, then wiping away the spittle on his flat nose, the sub-chief's broad reptilian forehead lowered with determination as he grabbed Anariak by the neck again and pressed his blade against his captive's throat. I would cut out your tongue for that if I were allowed. Coward! Anariak savored the impotent rage in the sub-chief's scarlet eyes, then grabbed the Grimm's weapon hand in his own and pushed him back again. My death 
will only bring the wrath of my father and my people upon you. Don't waste what little breath you have left to you, son of the bloodsucker king. Again, he grinned unpleasantly, as if at a private amusement, his sharp teeth reminding Anariok uncomfortably of a snake ready to strike. We know your father is dying, and with you given to the glory of our deliverer, there will be no one left to lead your pathetic people against us. He sheathed his dagger went to bind the prince's free arm, then thought otherwise and stood back in his place, clearly enjoying tormenting his captive. Keep your free arm, human. It will do you no good, just as your people's efforts will do them no good. We shall slaughter all who rape our land. Anariok struggled within the ropes, ashamed of wanting to die and frustrated with his inability to fight back or to change the Grimm's advantage or to change the truth. His father, the king, lay ill and feeble while he, the only heir to the throne, was prisoner of these savages. His mother had died in childbirth, therefore, with both their deaths, would come the end of the ancient dynasty of divinely anointed kings. Fear and chaos would reign in the western lands, and if a pretender didn't take the throne, the kingdom would almost certainly be destroyed between internal quarrels for imperial power and battles against the vengeful Grimms. Even if your people are foolish enough to try and rescue you before this sacrifice, we will simply take their new commanders as we took you and offer them to our deliverer until there are no more to fight us. The prince could only glare back defiantly. The grim strategy would work, of that he had no doubts. During the last moon's series of continuing skirmishes with the reptiles, he had taken his father's place on the battlefields, giving direction and inspiration to their legions. But this last fight had been more than the usual territorial conflict with the scattered tribes of Grimms who clung tenaciously to a continent that was no longer theirs alone. There had been no warning, no hint of trouble of this magnitude. For the first time, the Grimms had joined into one force and had swept into the field, overwhelming their enemy. The reptiles created a giant wedge of bodies and weapons and pushed their way directly toward the prince, cutting down his defenders and taking him hostage. He had been grabbed and clubbed unconscious and, the next thing he knew, had woken up tied to this stake. Where he was being held, he did not know exactly somewhere within the White Mountains north of the Royal Fortress City. At first he supposed he wasn't far from the battlefields and hoped for a rescue attempt at the very least. But after a day or so, it became clear that he was much farther from home than he realized, and that the sole purpose of this particular encampment of eighty score Grimms was to prevent his escape. If such a thing was possible, 
This war is already won. What do you say to that, human? The sub-chief crossed scaled arms over his chest and leered at the prince. Unable to find the energy among his frustrations and fears to retort, Anariak broke eye contact with a grim and looked at the sky, seeking an answer in the fading stars. The sub-chief sauntered back to the fire. In the back of his mind, Anariak Kajor allowed a resilient fiber of defiance to flash. I will survive somehow. A thin breeze swirled the morning mist overhead, dimming the waning constellations. Where is he, Bomoy? Marie asked her horse, expecting no reply, yet comforted by the flick of his ears at hearing his name. Chilled by the dawn air, she tugged her riding cloak tightly around her shoulders and stamped her feet on the cobblestone, absently wishing she owned warmer boots. Phantom footsteps reverberated down the street, paralleling the city's curtain wall. She glanced both directions, expecting to see a cloaked form emerging from the pockets of shadows. But there was no one. Torches angling out from the fortress wall marched into the distant streets until they were no more than flickering points of light, dwindling flames to silent melodies, the city's uneasy slumber. Where was he? The silence of her brooding was disturbed by a watchguard treading near on the broad top of the high outer wall. He cast a wary eye at the girl below, poised in readiness, paused in a moment of vague curiosity, then moved on. Ignoring the retreating soldier, Marie hugged close to her steed's neck, hoping to steal some of his warmth. He's late. Part of her hoped he would not show up. Part of her wondered if there really was a possibility of rescuing the crown prince. She had to admit that, at the very least, the old man had intrigued her with his eloquence and his own unshakable belief in the mystic powers. And, if nothing else, just being chosen to take part in a plan, no matter how ludicrous, to help save the life of her future king gave her some semblance of hope by which she could push back the dark inevitability of his death by the Grimms. Mages and their magic are acceptable, I suppose. Never having been more than a spectator in the general society of the kingdom. Even so, one always seemed to hear tales of great magics being done. But rarely, if ever, does one see same. Thus, the common perception of mages as nothing more than charlatans. To be honest, I'm not sure what to think yet. Faint puffs of frost from her steed's nose caught the flicker of the nearby torches before melting into the shadows. Twisting and untwisting the reins in her leather-gloved fingers, Marie watched the outside world from inside the darkened steel latticework of the city gate as the soundless concert of night slowly dissolved into daybreak. Distant shadowed lumps alongside faintly glowing coals of small dying fires lined the side of the road. Pilgrims fleeing the peril brought down by the Grimms and seeking safety within the city. And 
why me? I'm only a messenger, practiced in remembering and quoting words, not fetching myths. You are ready. This is good. <gasps> Marie nearly jumped, then spun around to meet eyes with Rothson. Though his gray cloak's hood framed his head in shadow, she could see his lips spread in a smile of greeting that made the small wrinkles around his eyes more pronounced in the wavering torchlight. Forgive me. I didn't mean to frighten you. You didn't? Too late, she realized it was pointless to argue with him. Rothson blinked knowingly at her, but ignored her denial as he lifted his hands and smoothly pulled the hood off his balding head. Tis nearly time. This is your last chance to ask me questions or change your mind. She lifted her chin and stared coldly back. I am a royal messenger. I do not shirk duty, especially when it concerns my liege. She quelled the knot in her stomach, hoping the old mage couldn't discern it. She liked to think she maintained a fearless demeanor, despite her self-doubts. It wasn't easy to foster respect as a woman in what was usually considered a man's post, and she had clearly earned that. Why else would Rothson have chosen her? You understand precisely what you are supposed to do. I don't really understand what I'm doing, but I know what is to be done. Timing is crucial. You must ride as fast as possible to the observatory to gain the gateway. If it wasn't for the roaming bands of Grimm's at night, we would have camped in the forest near it. It was all Marie could do not to smirk in disbelief. She knew that forest well, having grown up in a village that was beside it before Grimm's attacked and burned down their homes. This observatory is nothing but a circle of tall weathered stones standing in a clearing. Me and my friends used to play around them when we were little. No one had ever been sure why the stones were there or how they had been erected. Somebody had said something once about it being the site of an ancient fortress, and though not proven, no one had offered a differing explanation and it had stuck. It had interested Marie that Rothson and his mage associates were the only ones who referred to it as something other than the old fortress. And Rothson was the only one to mention anything about a mystic gateway that existed only at certain times for those who had the key. Regardless, she considered the place as nothing more than a curiosity. The old man squinted an eye at her with mild amusement. There's nothing wrong with doubting, my dear. You will soon see how things truly are. His quiet confidence served to snuff her skepticism for the moment, and she turned her attention to the task she was undertaking for him. When I get there, I am to use this? She pulled a silver medallion out from beneath her heavy bodice. With the word, you have practiced it sounding enough. It's just a word. Nevertheless, she had obeyed his implicit instructions with learning its precise pronunciation. And when you get there, you will use the transfer key to find him. I still don't understand Just do what I've taught you, Marie. Your curiosity and desire for complete knowledge is commendable, but we don't have the luxury of waiting until you understand how all of this works. Yes, Lord. His gentle expression belied his stern tone, helping Marie accept the mild rebuff without hurt feelings. 
Might I presume the favor of just one question of thee? His eyes glittered with a mute challenge as he nodded acquiescence. Why do you not undertake this journey? Rothson smothered a half-smile. I wondered when you might get around to asking me that. Originally I had planned such, but the myriad of forces at work against such a journey are difficult to keep track of unless one is observing from outside the event. He saw her frown with perplexity. Tis easier for me to protect you than it would be for me to protect myself. Oh. She nodded, not entirely convinced. Does that answer your one question sufficiently? Yes, Lord. One last thing. He raised a finger for emphasis. Due to this method of sending you via the transfer key, passage of time there will be different from here. Exactly how much I do not know. Suffice it to say a few moments spent there will equal three times as much here. Therefore you mustn't delay. Once you've found him, and assuming he's willing to help us, lead him back here as quick as possible. In either case, act quickly. If you remain too long, the gateway will close on both sides, and due to the unequal passage of time, you will not know when to attempt crossing that threshold. Close? Both sides? His gaze intensified. Put simply, you will be trapped there. Marie shivered. Such a possibility hadn't been mentioned before now and knew she would have to be resolute in her quickness. She took a deep breath to quell the lump in her gut. I understand. Such things as unequal passage of time was beyond her comprehension, but she knew better than to mull over it or to ask how he knew such a thing. Isn't the world confusing enough? Very well. Mount up. They will open the gate soon. You must be out immediately. Marie checked her cloak's clasp was secure, fit her boot into the stirrup, and lifted herself easily into the saddle, then stroked her horse's mane, always glad for his patience and quiet calm, especially when she was nervous. Sensing her anticipation, Bomalai advanced a step. What about the soldiers' checkpoints? Have you a warrant to allow passage? No. Marie stared in shock. Due to the escalating war with the reptiles, the Royal Guard had declared martial code over the surrounding land and at the city portals. All citizens traveling the roads to the distant villages or through the fortress gates were scrutinized to prevent grim spies from infiltrating. With timing so critical, how am I supposed to get to the forest if I don't even have a pass to get out this gate? The old mage was a senior member of the Silver Council, and she had presumed he would have no problem getting this mission approved, despite it being mystical in nature. With the king ill and receiving no one, and the royal guard in control of the roads, such particulars in this instance are impossible to obtain. Mythology would not be considered solid grounds for martial approval of a task such as this even if it was viewed as a harmless visit by a royal messenger to some old standing stones, consent would not have been given due to the perceived danger of riding without armed escort. Perceived? Then Just ride through the checkpoints and reach your destination. No one will notice you. Tossing back his patched cloak, he strolled around horse and rider and gestured the fingers of one hand in a perfunctory motion through the air as if he were waving away flies. What was that? A small enchantment. I didn't see anything happen. 
She felt uncomfortable with the idea of being the object of a spell. For the most part, sparkles and fire and nimbuses of soft light are a mage's method for satisfying an audience that doesn't know the difference between the invisible powers and their left foot. And, as we discussed a few days ago, I am not a mage. He looked pointedly at her. I am an enchanter. There is a difference. Checking herself on this, she suppressed a squirm of aggravation at being corrected. A horse is a horse, no matter its color. At the same time, she wondered what made this difference. Would this supposed enchantment of his really work? He seemed to sense her tacit question, and his eyes held hers. You will not be noticed. Daybreak was imminent. Marching feet heralded the arrival of the dawn watch to open the gates. Before turning his piercing eyes away, Rothson touched a firm hand to Marie's boot in the stirrup. Trust me. Hearing a hint of vulnerability in his plea, her annoyance and mistrust with the situation eased, and she smiled reassuringly. As you have instructed, Lord, it will be done for my liege. Despite public mistrust and suspicion, the Silver Council was never ridiculed. The Enchanter turned to face the approaching patrol as he drew his gray cloak back around himself. For a moment, Marie saw his gaze intensify for a fleeting instant, as if he tried to burn them with his eyes. Then he relaxed visibly and waited for them to unbolt the counterweights that would raise the portcullis. Marie waited for the officer in charge to challenge Rothson and her standing at the gates without warrant or pass, but to her quiet amazement, she and her steed and the enchanter were ignored as the men went about their task. With a last glance at Rothson, who nodded reassuringly, Marie nudged her gray into motion, and he leaped through the yawning gateway between the soldiers leaving behind Rothson and the patrol that remained blithely unaware of them. She rained Bomali down the worn road leading away from the great lake south of the city. Pilgrims, hearing the roar of the gate lifting, awoke and rubbed sleep from their eyes. No one noticed the royal messenger thundering past on her horse. The thrill of the early morning run surging through her veins, Marie coaxed more speed from her gray as they headed for a checkpoint ahead. She experienced a fleeting moment of doubt when she saw the watchfire appear on the crest of the knoll over which the road passed. Should I slow down in case I am seen? Urgency and her training as a messenger provided the impetus to keep Bomali at full gallop. If one is ordered to stop while walking, one usually stops. If one is ordered to stop while running, one usually runs faster. If Rothson's spell didn't work, at least she would have quickness with which to overcome the checkpoint. As they neared, she was disturbed at the absence of soldiers. Perhaps they're scouting the territory. They couldn't expect a traveler this early. Pressing on, she passed the unattended fire and noted the lack of any equipment or weapons. Where are they? 
On the lee side of the hill, she made out four silhouettes ahead, apparently digging on the road. Marie allowed Bomalai to come to an uncertain stop. Who could be cutting into the road this early? She thought to ride around, but the four were working in an area where the road narrowed between thick underbrush and piles of boulders. Birds in the nearby copses of trees chirped in cheerful greeting to the morning, reminding Marie of the advancing sunrise. Praying that Rothson's spell was as powerful as he seemed, or that the figures ahead would be uncaring, the royal messenger nudged her steed. Nearing, she could make out the armor and helms of the royal guardsmen, and relaxed a little. Then one of them pointed to another. Marie's blood went cold. These Grims had most likely killed the checkpoint guards and taken their uniforms. Her first thought was gruesome. They're digging graves for the men they killed? No, that's ridiculous. As her shock eased, she realized they were constructing one of the more common Grim traps. Ropes hidden in a narrow trench with which they could trip up horses, thereby subduing their riders and making them vulnerable to attack. Gripping the reins tightly, she was about to wheel Bomalai around and gallop back to the safety of the city, but stopped when she observed that she was already close enough now for them to have noticed her, and yet they apparently did not, their immediate attention on their task. Rostin's spell is working. Encouraged, though still dubious, she urged Bomalai forward again. She found the sensation eerie as the four Grimms blithely continued their devilment, completely unaware as horse and rider minced their way through them and over the trench they dug. Having no time to marvel at the wonder of not being seen or heard, and still afraid one of the Grimms might somehow penetrate the magicking placed over her, she shuddered with disgust and nudged Bomalai's side with her heels, speeding him up to full gallop again. She had never been this close to the reptiles before, and she rubbed her nose to dispel the unpleasant smell of weeds and sweat that hovered around them. Part of her wanted to get back to the city and warn others of the trap in the road, but there would be questions. Not only that, but she would be forced to fail in her task as a royal messenger, thereby betraying Rothson and his plan to seek help in rescuing the hostage prince. She pressed on, glancing back once to see the advancing dawn. The first sun was almost completely above the horizon. Rothson had stated clearly and repeatedly that the observatory's gateway would only be within grasp between the first and second sunrises. Shortly, she came upon the old trail leading to the site, and she reined Bomalai firmly down the fork while maintaining their speed. Clods of dirt and leaves flew as his hooves struck the softer turf of the little-used trail. Dodging low branches of green leaves, Marie kept a wary eye on the path ahead for possible holes or other obstacles. A misstep at this speed would be dangerous, but they could not afford to be late. As the trail wound its way up an incline, they burst forth from the shadows of the forest. A dull gleam of reflected sunlight was ahead, the circle of stones. Keeping a hand on the reins, she reached into her bodice, brought out the medallion hanging from its chain, and held it tight so as not to lose it in the furious ride. Reaching the top of the knoll, she pulled up suddenly, not sure where to go. 
Before her was the circle with stones of varying height towering over her and Bomalai, and she wondered at how they seemed bigger than she remembered. The close brush with the Grimms had addled her memory somewhat. Rothson had said to pass between the two vertical stones bridged by a horizontal, but there were three sets standing at different points on the circle's perimeter. She glanced at the dawn horizon. Time was running out fast. Which one? Bomalai echoed her bewilderment, his ears pricking at strange sounds emanating from the forest below. More glimpse, perhaps? This entire area was on the fringe of territories alternately claimed, lost, and reclaimed by the reptiles. But this was of no concern as long as the spell was in effect. Rothson, you fool! You didn't tell me which one! A flash from between her fingers caught her eye, and she looked down to see the medallion glowing with white fire. Entranced by such a rare sight, she supposed being in such close proximity to the stones must have triggered it. What now? Then she remembered the word. Rakesa! Without a sound, the space between the tall stones directly across the circle from her shifted. Shimmering with light of its own, a mist appeared, blocking view of anything beyond. If not for its suddenness, and how it was contained between the stones, she would have presumed it nothing more than morning fog reflecting the suns. Noise erupted from the path leading to the circle, urging her into immediate action. Knowing what she was supposed to do, yet still uncertain as to the outcome, Marie nudged Bomalai and they ran toward the misty gateway. Daring to glance at the artifact in her palm, she wondered at how it burned with the light of the suns. As they passed between the stones and into the mist, a loud crack smote the air. Letting the medallion swing wildly from its chain, Marie gripped the reins and his mane in an effort to hold herself steady and gain some control. Around her, the world warped inward, making her dizzy and she closed her eyes out of reflex, not wanting to see what happened next as she tried to focus all her attention on riding full speed. Believing they were on the trail of a human scout or spy, a patrol of four Grims followed the fresh hoofprints on the trail and climbed the broad hillside toward the stones. They stopped in their tracks, jerking their heads up in time to see a ball of white fire shooting skyward. Shadows danced briefly within the circle of stones. The Grimms glanced around furtively and backed off the hill with blades drawn, then scurried to the safety of the forest. Part 1, Prelude, The Hostage Prince. The sound plays were written, recorded, directed, mastered, and produced by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Copyright 2022. Character voices for Prelude are performed by Geraldine Cummings, Kevin Norris, and H, the Great and Powerful.
The novel and sequels of the Quintology are available through Amazon.com or on Kindle Books, can be ordered at your favorite bookseller, or can be purchased directly and at best price with additional bonuses from the author by submitting a request to our email. Music for the Harkin Theater was composed and performed by Evan McDonald, Florian Soral, Francesco D'Andrea, Atlas Mason, High Street Music of London, and licensed by PremiumBeat.com. Public domain music performances are licensed under Lieber Lieber Creative Commons. More detailed music and performer credits can be requested from the Harkin Theater at Yahoo.com. Sound effects and original foley provided by Cusp Studios and the BBC Library. This was recorded on location in the universe.